fall fresh now on this preacher. And on these, your servant, both gathered here and listening, live stream. Amen. Deuteronomy is the last of the five books attributed to Moses. The third division of the book, chapters 27 through 34, is a mighty revelation of the future, both in terms of blessings and curses upon the nation of Israel. The 28th chapter is one of the most amazing prophecies ever recorded in the Old Testament. This prophetic passage is fully as complete and remarkable in its details as any other prophecy that I'd ever read in Scripture. It is a prediction of the entire history of the Jewish people. Even after they ceased to be a nation and were scattered over the face of the earth, here we find the entire record of all that Israel has gone through in these long, long centuries. First, for my biblical scholars, you will remember the prediction of the Babylonian dispersion. When Israel failed to heed the prophets and turn to other gods, and Yahweh would send them out into captivity. This happened, as you know, under King Nebuchadnezzar. And now in chapter 34, is recorded the death and burial of the great lawgiver, Moses. The fact that God buried Moses, has always fascinated me. We would never tolerate such a secretive home going for the person who challenged a cruel pharaoh, parted the Red Sea, and guided the Israelites for 40 years through the wilderness journey. He built a temporary tabernacle for God and prayed down manna and water for their sustenance and brought them to the brink of the land God promised. Moses was the kind of leader that would have gotten a grand home-going celebration that would have been awake in the tabernacle's rotunda with grandiose choral selections coming from God's Levite choir and a parade of memorialization testimonies sent his way. The Ark of the Covenant would have become the final throne for this mighty, mighty king of Israel. But that's not the funeral God had planned for Moses. The great lawgiver and leader who had been a lonely man, all of his life was now surrounded by a whole new generation of followers. They wandered to all the generation was now gone. All the old familiar faces had vanished, leaving him more solitary than ever. Moses had lived alone with God, and it was fitting, it seems, that alone with God he should die. Imagine how somber Moses' congregation must have watched 
As under his own strength and power, he crests the mountain that would become his final resting place, never to be seen again. Moses died there in dreary solitude, somewhere in the crevice of the mountain overlooking the promised land. And no one knows where he is buried. It remains to this day an unknown tomb of a celebrated soldier. What a contrast to the grave of another deliverer whose sepulcher in the garden by a city wall, guarded by those who wanted him dead and haunted by the multitudes of weeping friends, was visited by a great light of angelic faces. One teaches the loneliness of the mystery of death. The other reveals the light and the darkness and the companionship of Almighty God. One faded from memory because it was nothing to anyone. No impulse, no gift, no hope would ever come from it. The other forever draws hearts to the victory in which all our hopes are rooted and grounded in. One rested in oblivion in a mountain grave. The other leaves an empty grave to occupy his preordained throne so that many can know exactly where he is. As we examine the circumstances of Moses' death, I think we can learn three valuable lessons from this solitary life of this saint. First, we learn that the wage of sin is death. If Israel learned nothing else from Moses, they would learn that sin has consequences. The man who taught his followers that the soul that sins shall die had to fall on his own sharpened axe without ever entering the promised land. You know what happened, right? Moses sinned when in a moment of human passion, he disobeyed God's specific instructions to speak to the rock that would produce life-giving water. Instead, he struck the rock that he was told to speak to. And for a few critical minutes, Moses' angry words to a rebellion nation of Israel prove that Moses has forgotten he was only an instrument in God's divine hand. Some scholars believe that Moses' punishment was too heavy of a penalty for what seems like such a small offense. It may seem small, but can any leader's offense be small when it affects millions of souls. The closer a person comes in communion and in leadership in God's kingdom on earth, the more critical the message God places in their care, the more intolerable even the slightest disobedience becomes. Like a splash of mud on a bride's beautiful white satin gown. A little sin by a great leader ceases to be small. 
God's penalty was not as harsh and unfair as it seemed. Moses' momentary lapse of outside on the outside reveals a deeper, more festering problem on the inside. Like a plant whose poison root is hidden underground after 37 long years of obedience. Moses strained at the opportunity and strained under the task now of handling this new generation of followers proved that he was not fit for the responsibility and circumstances that lay ahead. Remember what he said? Before striking the rock, he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebellions. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and all the livestock drank. So the penalty was not as unfair as it seems on the surface. So let me ask you a question. Is there anyone among us who after working for years at a very thankless task would not want to collect their wages? Like they're collecting the proverbial gold watch at retirement. Remember, Moses did not lose God's divine favor. The penalty for forgiving sin is never hard to bear. It is punctually and mercifully always applied by loving God. God will not change God's divine law for any person. God said, I am the Lord thy God, I change not. Therefore, the wages of sin is death and it always will but justice is tempered with mercy as God offers death the opportunity for forgiveness and a resurrection to new life. And let me hurry up and say this and add this. Since the life and death of Jesus, sin's death, when the biblically talks about it, is not talking about a physical death most of the time. It's talking about the kind of of death, the kind that robs us of the life that God intends us to live, the kind that causes us pain and sorrow, the kind that causes us to toil and sweat harder than we need to, the kind that is subjection. It is true, sin gives a temporary pleasure. Indulgence in sin is ego-satisfying. And therefore, we engage in it because we like the temporary pleasure it gives. But as we have already seen, it's a package deal. We cannot omit the bad parts and take only the good. It all goes together and thereby contributes to the sense of loss familiar to all, a sense of emptiness within, a restlessness of the journey that God has placed us on. The second lesson we learn from the death of Moses is life is never finished before it ends. For all his 40 years, all Moses thought about 
was the day when he, his fragile nation of teeming millions, would enter into the blessed land that God had promised them. We can picture him standing on the cliffs of Moab with less than a half a dozen miles to go. He lifts his eyes and way up to the north, he sees the rolling hills of Gilead and the deep gash where the Jordan separates the blue hills of Naphtali and Galilee. He sees the central mountains of Ephraim and Manasseh and further south, the stony summits of the Judean hills where Jerusalem and Bethlehem would lie. Then his eyes fall on the fertile valley of the Jordan, where Jericho's swaying palm trees glistening in the sun. This was the land the Lord had promised to Israel's ancestors. This was the land for which Moses had been longing for, journeyed for. This was the land to which all of his work had been directed for these many years. And now, it seems pathetic that he is to die there in Moab and take no part in the grand inheritance. But this is the epitaph of many people who toil in obscurity in God's kingdom on earth and in the church. They are constructive and reforming and geniuses in many ways. Whether they are in the church or in the world, toil, they toil at their task, and the full impact of their work is never known until they are laid in the tomb for many years. But wait a minute. Isn't that the rubric for our own little Christian lives? The Bible says that some plant some water, but God gives the increase. We don't know the impact of our faith on the unborn generation, but we do know this, that faith seeds germinate and produce. It's clear. It's clear. The worth of life is too large to be viewed completely in the here and now. Be careful. A quick return on our life investment could mean that we have already received the full reward that we are seeking. Isn't it far better to live for your future generations that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? Isn't it better to live a life as a godly servant and, com and live in complete obscurity than to be a scoundrel and achieve everything earth has to give? Friends, a half-finished temple is better than a finished pigsty. Moses may have never have entered the promised land, but we are still enjoying the benefits of his life's toil and leadership. His lessons learned anchor many who followed him in a life's of service to God and serve the generations that have followed him to this day. Third, this. We learn the lesson 
that new conflicts require new leadership. New conflicts requires new leadership. This is perhaps the toughest pill for any servant of Jesus Christ to swallow. We never want to admit that we are finished with this work and this life. Biblical commentators have spent a great deal of ingenuity trying to determine the reason why God concealed the grave of Moses. But if we look closely, we will see that God did not conceal his grave at all. Our ignorance of the location is not by divine design, design, but simply a consequence of the circumstances surrounding Moses' death. His body lay on enemy soil, and the Jews had other more pressing things to do than to look for a grave of a dead commander and a dead leader. They had to conquer the land, and a living Joshua was what they needed, not a dead Moses. It's easy to fill in the gaps. After 30 days of sadness and remembrance, the text says, so the days of mourning for Moses ended. Just a month, that was all, and then everybody turned to the new man named Joshua who had been appointed to take over, that's all? After 37 years of traveling, that's all? After being kicked out of your inheritance in the Pharaoh's court, that's all? After losing your wife and your children, that's all? 30 days of remembrance. Joshua, who had been appointed to take over, the fledgling nation of Israel didn't miss a beat. As great as Moses was, God always has a ram in the bush. As great of a leader as Moses was, Joshua was the right man for the job now. Don't think for a minute that we are the only somebody God has to fill our present shoes. And I, as a pastor, am probably the worst at this. In 40 years, I have started, grown congregations, restarted congregations and grown them. And when you leave, there's a tear in your eye to think that you have toiled all these years. My time of retirement is at hand. And I've discovered God already has a replacement for me. This is God's ministry. I'm only here for this amount of time. And God has already raised up my replacement. God has many tools in God's chest. And 
God needs them all before God's work is done. Joshua could no more have stretched out Moses' rod than Moses could have wielded Joshua's sword. Once our work is done, new circumstances require a new type of servant. God may need a smaller servant who's better fitted for the rough work that lies ahead. God may need an administrative genius with financial savvy. God may need a compassionate leader with endless empathy. God may need members with better feet to spread the good news wherever they trod. God may need new voices that doesn't speak negativity but speak the truth in love. God may need new people to carry the heavier load of numerical growth. And so it is with each generation that God has his own men and women already chosen to do their part in the work of kingdom building. Before they hand the task over to the next line, God has already chosen the leader. The division of labor multiplies the joy at the end when all the saints of God will rally round the throne for the celebration of the coming of Christ's kingdom fulfilled. But there is one, my brothers and sisters, who can never be replaced. His grave tells a different story, a story of a work completed once and for all, of a celebration of a life that never dies. The Bible says he lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. Christ and Christ alone will never be obsolete or antiquated. He remains the chief shepherd of all of us. Aaron died and was buried on Mount Or. Moses died and was buried on Mount Pisgah. Joshua died and was buried in his hometown. The eternal word of God worked through them all and came at last in human flesh to be everlasting, the deliverer, the redeemer, the founder of the new covenant, the last lawgiver, guide through our wilderness, captain of our well warfare, and all the, that you and I will ever need. And to the last generation of wandering pilgrims have crossed their Jordan to study war no more. The dead Moses points to a living Christ. There is no lack, lack that Christ cannot provide. The dead Joshua points to the living Christ. There is no battle Christ cannot win. A dead Abraham points to a living Christ. There is no sacrifice that he would not be willing to embrace for you and I. A dead Paul points to a living Christ. There is no stripes that Christ will not bear for you and I. Where others have failed, 
Christ conquers. Where others were defeated, Christ succeeds. Where others were barren, Christ is fruitful. Where others are weak, Christ is strong. Where others become victims, Christ is victorious. Brothers and sisters, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're in this by yourself. Because we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities. We are here to keep the line of servants of Christ going and then hand this off to the next generation that God has already prepared. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, thank you so, so much that you remind this servant that this is your ministry. I'm your servant. None of this belongs to me. It's all yours. Thank you, living Christ. That reminds me in every single thing that I do that I am but your hands and feet in the world. And without you, I'm nothing. May the life of all your saints gathered and watching us live stream be a testimony to the generation to come that we serve an awesome God. Amen.